0: Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak. I'm an academic economist by training and the executive vice president of criminal justice at Arnold Ventures. My guest this week is William Arbor. Will is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Montreal. Will, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And I should say up front that everything we say today represents our own views and not necessarily those of our employers. Okay, and with that, we can dive in. Today, we're going to talk about your research on a prison-based cognitive behavioral therapy program. Before we get into that, though, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic?
1: Sure. So I am an empirical microeconomist, and I'm interested in studying different social issues such as crime, education, or labor. In the crime space, most of my work is about finding ways to encourage inmates' social rehabilitation into society after an incarceration spell. So when I first started working on my master's thesis in economics, the government in Quebec, where I'm from, and where this paper is set, that government started a large evaluation of their multiple programs that they had in prison. Basically, they offered different types of programming, but they didn't know at the time what the effects were. And so along with my co-authors, we wrote the first reports uh, on the effects of programming on recidivism. And while we were working on this, we discovered that we don't know much, if at all, about effects of programs in prison. But not only Quebec. That's true for programs given around the world, basically. And this was quite puzzling to me at the time, given how many people could actually be affected by these programs. And how much of resources were allocated to these programs, including financial or human resources. So I started my PhD in economics uh, after this, and I realized that more and more papers were written about the very effects of prison. And at that point, we faced a puzzle. Some papers were finding positive effects of incarceration on recidivism, and some others were finding negative effects of prison on recidivism. And this is quite a puzzle. We didn't know what was driving these effects in either directions. But one important pattern was that the conditions in prisons seem to be important. And what I mean here by conditions is, for example, the availability of such programming. And it's often suggested by authors that such programs could drive the effects of incarceration on recidivism. But we still don't know whether these effects are. So my entire PhD thesis was about opening this prison black box, trying to understand what's really happening behind bars and what works and doesn't inside prisons. All of this to know how inmates could reintegrate society following an incarceration period.
0: This is reminding me of that phase in the PhD where you go from feeling like every interesting question has been answered to at some point. And so like how on earth are you supposed to come up with your own research question and your own original research to do? And then at some point you find a topic where you're like, wait, we don't know anything about that. <laughs> and this feels yeah. like exactly one of those, those places, right? There's tons of research on the effects of prison, but we have no idea what the impacts of different prison programs or anything that happens inside prisons, like what the impacts of any of those things are. So that black box that you're describing is very real. And um. So you've stumbled upon a major research frontier, indeed. Okay, so your paper is titled, Can Recidivism Be Prevented from Behind Bars? Evidence from a Behavioral Program. So let's start with some basics. What is cognitive behavioral therapy, which we'll call CBT for short?
1: So cognitive behavioral therapy, or as you said, it's CBT, is a very special kind of therapy that helps people Identifying the destructive and disturbing thoughts, patterns that they might have. And it's based on the concept that the thoughts and feelings are directly connected with behavior. So that means that identifying such thoughts and such feelings and changing them could result in improved behavior. This is not necessarily only applied to criminal contexts. CBT was first designed to treat depression, but now has been used to treat other types of anxiety disorders, other types of disorders uh, such as substance abuse or eating abuse, for example. In criminal contexts, CBT is a little bit different than in other contexts to treat other types of disorders. CBT, when applied to crime, is used to identify patterns and the causes of criminality and to identify problematic behavior. Most programs will focus on very specific skills such as problem-solving, impulse control, or moral reasoning. The goal of all of this is to reduce the likelihood of recidivism.
0: Okay. And then, so, why might CBT affect criminal behavior? Walk through those potential mechanisms a little bit more.
1: Well, first, it's not clear at all whether CBT will affect criminal behavior in any way, especially behind bars. There are some various views about this. So some practitioners will view incarceration as a unique opportunity for intervention. Prison is a highly controlled environment, and it might be easier to ensure constant participation in CBT week after week. But some others are a little bit more pessimistic. And they might think that incarceration is a little bit, it's too late of a stage really for such an intervention, especially when we're talking about adults who have a criminal history depending on the context incarcerated people might have committed quite severe crimes actually this is a, the case in canada where community sentences are very common when you are incarcerated this means that the offense wise was quite severe so in most prisons where cbt is available sessions are held in groups now is that ideal to have CBT sessions in group where people have committed quite severe crimes? Well, this is quite an empirical question.
0: So, What you're saying there is, is just that you, if you have like one-on-one CBT with a therapist, that might be effective. But if you get a bunch of high-risk people together to do anything, we might be worried there are negative pure effects or the CBT wouldn't be, maybe the programming isn't a, isn't uh, going to be high, isn't going to be effective then if you're with a, a group of people who are all struggling uh, with the same thing, something like that
1: exactly. If the CBT program is targeting is targeted at high risk people, if they have a certain number of hours of intervention altogether, and if the 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 goal of the program is for them to learn from one another, the negative pair effects could cancel totally or partially the positive effect of CBT in prison. Now, one-on-one CBT is possible, but it takes more resources. So most CBT programs in prison are group-based. Is that ideal for CBT? It's really not clear.
0: Yeah. So how common are CBT programs for high-risk populations like people who are in prison?
1: Quite surprisingly, they are very common at different stages in the criminal justice system, both in Canada and in the U.S. and in other European countries as well. So I'm saying... They are available at different stages because they will be provided for people serving a community sentence, for example, during a probation sentence. They will also be provided in jails or prisons. In jails, people will be serving for less than a year in the U.S., whereas in prisons, we're talking about people serving for more than a year. And CBT is offered to all of these types of populations. And it's also targeted to different types of inmates based on their age. So there are programs targeted at juvenile offenders and other for adult offenders. And this is true both in the US and in Canada. There are different types of programs, but really the nature of the program does not change very much. It's all about identifying the negative patterns of behavior.
0: How standardized are these programs? I mean, the last piece you said that, you know, they're not all necessarily identical, but they have some sort of core programming. I think one big challenge in spaces like this is that you have something that's effective, but then being able to replicate that thing, implement it somewhere else. You're never quite sure if that slightly different version that you've implemented somewhere else is effective. So I know the study that we're gonna or the, the program we're gonna talk about today that's implemented throughout Quebec is implemented in prisons, is like one program that is implemented throughout Quebec. Are there other kind of named programs like that that are very standardized, that are common?
1: There are others, CBT programs that are very standardized, but I totally agree with you that it's usually quite a challenge. Other CBT programs in the U.S. include, for example, Thinking for a Change. That is a very standardized program that's implemented across the U.S. In the case of Quebec, The program that I will be studying, the CBT program, is the only one that is standardized. Most programs are managed at the facility level. Counselors within the facility are responsible for designing the programs. This is not the case with the CBT. It was developed by a criminologist and then they trained counselors to make sure that it's provided the very same way across all the different facilities. So one thing I will say also is that it comes with a user guide. So all the activities, the role-playing exercises, all the different situations, all the different guided interviews that they have within decisions is already written down in this guided manual. So the counselors have little to no flexibility over the, the activities in the CBT program.
0: Okay, great. And we'll talk more about the details of the program in a moment, but Yeah, that's reassuring as we think about like what is it we're testing here? There's a very clear cookbook, so to speak, for what it is that we're implementing. And it gives us hope that it's not super dependent on a particular, you know, charismatic counselor or something like that. Exactly. Okay. So before this paper, what did we know about the effectiveness of these programs? I guess both in and out of prison.
1: So the short answer is not much. And this was quite shocking to me. I even had to turn to Twitter to make sure I wasn't forgetting any
0: papers. (laughs) Twitter's great for that.
1: (laughs) Twitter is great, but I didn't find any answers really. I did find other very inspiring papers. So we knew at the time when I started working on this, that CBT can be effective at preventing people from engaging in criminal activities. So I'm talking about juvenile at risk of committing offenses or at risk men. So one example of that is a paper by Sarah Heller and uh, her co-authors in which they studied three randomized behavioral interventions aimed at at-risk youth in Chicago. These are young people at risk of committing crimes. They're not people who have already engaged in, in crime. But what they find is super interesting. They find strong evidence that participation in CBT interventions uh, reduce the likelihood of future arrest. Another example is a paper by Blattman, Jamison, and Sheridan. They conducted an RCT in Liberia, a country in West Africa, where they recruited at-risk adult men to receive either a cash transfer, CBT, or a combination of both. And they find that the combination of both treatments, so the cash transfer and the CBT intervention, resulted in a dissistence from crime. And they even have this follow-up paper where they find still effects ten years after participation. So what's interesting in these studies is they find these very strong effects, but here the population of interest is quite different. When we're talking about the present population, we're obviously talking about a population that has already engaged in crime. And if you're in Canada, for example, the offenses that would that will result in an incarceration spell are usually quite severe. So we're talking about people who have potentially ingrained habits, who have formed a criminal network. So whether these type of interventions or whether these results translate to this very different population is pretty much an empirical question. And this is a question I'm trying to answer in that paper.
0: So why didn't we know more than we did before you first started this study? What makes this so challenging to study, if these programs are so widespread and so so popular, is the challenge mostly about getting the right data? Is the challenge mostly about finding a good natural experiment or finding a place to conduct a randomized trial? Is it both of those things? What do you think the biggest challenge was?
1: I think you're right. I think it's a combination of both of these reasons. So to me, the main difficulty when assessing uh, the programs or when interpreting the results that we have in the literature is about the selection bias. So CBT in most contexts, not only when it's given in in crime context, relies on voluntary participation. So as a researcher, you cannot simply compare the outcomes of participants with non-participants. Such a comparison would be contaminated by a selection bias.
0: And so, yeah, give us an example.
1: So if offenders, for example, with the earnest desire to rehabilitate are more likely to participate, then we would mistakenly find that CBT does miracles, when it, it doesn't. If it, we're just comparing different groups of with different characteristics. But another example could be in the other direction. This is what's interesting about the prison context. The selection bias could actually be in the other direction as well. Participation in CBT looks really good on paper. So you could have an inmate who decides to participate just before he meets with a Parable member, uh, for example, just to get an early release. So you have two different types of stories here, and both are credible. You could have people who are highly motivated to rehabilitate themselves, who tend to participate a little bit more. But you have also people who might view this as a chance only to get an early release. So that type of selection bias here is not clear at all.
0: I'm imagining even another story where you've got people who are, you know, pushed toward CBT because they're they're having particular trouble in some way. So if you have maybe I don't know some sort of a lot of trauma in your in your background, you might have a counselor who's highly recommending CBT, and so then you have an even higher risk population than your typical inmate.
1: Absolutely. So if you compare a group of high risk inmates with the general prison population you'll find that the program doesn't do much, where in reality, what you're capturing is not the causal effect of the, the participation in the treatment. It's just differences across groups. So that's a really major issue and uh, a challenge, I should say, when you're trying to evaluate such programs. And the second reason, and you alluded to this one, is getting data. So to conduct such an evaluation, you need data on prison records that can be merged with participation records in CBT. And I feel when talking with people working in the same space, this is the hard part, the participation data. Most data is managed at the facility level and is not readily mergeable with administrative data that would document recidivism, for example. And so getting data about both recidivism and participation records, that seems quite challenging in most contexts.
0: Yeah, I suspect that... um... If you actually, you know, go to a facility and talk through how these programs are allocated, we'd probably be able to find a lot of neat natural experiments like the one that you're going to talk about here. But I agree, like getting the facilities to actually share those internal records beyond just the record, the data on who's incarcerated and what the incarceration dates are. Because that's pretty easy at this point.
1: Yeah. But getting no, the data
0: about. What goes on inside the prison has been remarkably difficult.
1: I agree. And I actually started this project because I was talking with people on the field and their feeling was the program was not doing very much. The problem with that is that they only see people when they're coming back. And when they started explaining to me how they selected the highest risk and made to participate in the program, I said, wait, we need to evaluate this. So then I learned a little bit more uh, about the program, about the selection process, and I found this natural experiment, of which we'll talk about in a second. But it's true that even on the field, the thought the program was not doing very much. Uh, we'll see later if that, that's the case.
0: Interesting. Okay, so in this paper, you consider a program implemented in prisons throughout Quebec called Parkour. So tell us about this program. What does it involve?
1: So Parkour is a CBT program that's offered in the provincial prisons of Quebec. So the provincial prisons in Canada will host people sentenced for less than two years. If someone is sentenced to more than two years, they will be sent to a federal prison. So parkour, the CBT program, was implemented in the provincial prisons. So we're talking about people serving mostly only for a few months. Think about six to nine months on average. Parkour was developed exactly with this in mind. So it's a little bit shorter than other CBT programs in other contexts. It consists of 24 hours of intervention with a trained professional. But on top of the 24 hours, the the participants have to complete homework by themselves in between sessions. And they will also have uh, individual interviews with the counselor. So before starting the program, at the end, but also in between modules. Parkour is a group-based program that will allow between 3 and 10 participants at a time. And the idea is the group will stick to each other and will meet every week or so to complete the 24 hours of intervention. The program is a different mix of activities, including guided discussions between the inmates and the counselors, or between the inmates themselves. They will review case studies, they will do different types of role-playing exercises, but the, the goal of all of this is to identify pro-criminal attitudes of the participants. So one example of a pro-criminal attitude that they want to identify is, for example, if an inmate tend to see themselves as the victim of the system rather than someone who commits a crime. So I want to give you an example of a meaningful activity that's included in parkour very early on. So the counselor will read a story about this young man committing more and more severe crimes, and the story will explain how this lifestyle affects the individual himself, but also his entourage. Now, as a group, the participants will try to think about the benefits and the costs of, of such a lifestyle. This is exactly what Becker has had in mind when he uh, devised the, the the model of criminal capital. What are the benefits and the consequences? Of crime. Now, what's interesting is that the inmates themselves will do that exercise with a case study. Now, after hearing everyone's answer, the participants are given an empty sheet of paper and they are asked to list the pros and the cons of their own lifestyle, the one that led to their incarceration. So, So there's really a bridge here between the activity and actual reflection on their own behavior. And that's how they can identify. The patterns and the disruptive behaviors that led to uh, to incarceration. So this is this is just one example of an activity that can shed light on the multiple but also often hidden consequences of criminal activities.
0: Did you have a chance to to go in and actually see these programs in action at all? Or would that have been too intrusive?
1: I visited a prison. I didn't have a chance to actually uh, see the Went program. to a session.
0: Yeah, that probably would, would not have been helpful for the session.
1: For the session, perhaps not. Perhaps not because they tried to go into very emotional uh, discussions. Right. What I did, I talked with some counselors who provide the program. So I was able to learn uh, all the very details about the programs. I would love to see the other side as well. I, would, I think it would be super interesting to know how the participants felt about the program.
0: Yeah, did you get an impression from the counselors about how um like I mean this this these kinds of questions about like, you know, what are the costs and benefits and how do we shift the costs and benefits so that you make different decisions is very intuitive to us as economists. It's like, oh great, let's talk people respond to incentives. How do we change their incentives? Did you get the impression from talking with the counselors that this clicked with the the participants as well? Like is this did people immediately see the point here or Does it take a while for people to get into it?
1: The sense that I got is that it takes a while. Yeah. So the example I gave was just one activity over 24 hours of intervention. I will talk about this a little bit later. I tried to find whether it has immediate impacts on disciplinary infractions. And I do not find this is the case. And I can explain later about why I think this is the case. But the sense I got from talking with other practitioners is that just one session is Potential is not enough. Certainly not enough. Yeah. Completing the entire intervention, that's that's when perhaps most skills will stick a little bit longer.
0: Yeah. So who is eligible to participate in this program? And beyond eligibility, how are participants selected or assigned, or how do they sign up for it?
1: So like most CBT programs, SparkCore is completely voluntary. So anyone can participate in the program the inmates themselves will decide whether they want to enroll or not. So it's not the case, for example, that a judge or uh, another counselor can force participation. However, after their arrival at the facility and just within a few days, inmates meet with an evaluator. And that evaluator is responsible to conduct a first evaluation. And the goal of that evaluation is to assess the inmates' needs in terms of programming. And the thing about CBT is that it might not be a right fit for everyone. So evaluators will be looking for high risk individuals who have these pro-criminal values, because again, this is the main focus of the program, but they will also be looking for individuals who are deemed not receptive to other types of treatment. So if they have in front of them, someone who will not participate in job skills, workshops, who will not complete further education classes, or will not work while they are serving their time, that might be a good uh, fit for the CBT program. And so because they will select people who are deemed not receptive to other types of treatment, it's often the case that individuals who participate in CBT will only participate in CBT and nothing else. So the assignment here of evaluators to these inmates is a crucial part of the identification strategy.
0: Yeah, so tell us more about that. So how do you use this assignment process to measure the causal effect of participation in the CBT program?
1: So again, these evaluators, based on their judgment, can recommend participation in CBT. And the word judgment is important here. So when I first got the data, I started analyzing the data. And at first, that's not the design at all that I had in mind. I, I wanted to do something else. But when I first started looking at the data, I noticed that some evaluators, based on their personal and anonymized identifier, tend to push a large share of their cases to the CBT program. But others, counselors, not that much. So the first thing I do for it is, okay. maybe the the inmates are different. But I realized that it wasn't the case. It really seemed it was on the evaluator's side that there were some discrepancies. Again, talking with people on the field, what I've come to realize is that some evaluators simply do not believe that the program is doing much. So again, here, that's all based on on their own judgment. And so these evaluators could tend to recommend more rarely than others. Now, for a researcher, when I learned that, I thought, okay, this is great. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) This is perfect for me. I can use the random assignments of inmates to these evaluators to predict Participation. So let me just provide you with an example of about how I'm thinking about this strategy, how it can replicate some natural experiment. So let's say that we have two identical inmates. They have the same observed and unobservable characteristics. So for example, they committed the same crime and they also have the same level of motivation to rehabilitate. So let's say that one of them meets with an evaluator who always recommends. The program, and that evaluator highly encourages him to, to participate, so likely that person will participate in CBT. But let's say that the other meets with an evaluator who never recommends the program because they don't, they don't believe in the program. So that individual, individual is less likely to participate, perhaps it's because they're not even aware that the program exists among all the different other programs that exist on site. So what's interesting is that we can compare the recidivism outcomes for these two individuals. At first, they were identical, same observed and unobserved characteristics. But at some point, because they met a different person, they ended up not participating, one of them not participating and the other did. So we can compare the recidivism outcomes of these two individuals. So this is different from comparing the participants with non-participants. Because the capture six would be different. In my setting, I'm comparing identical inmates, or perhaps that's the intuition behind the method.
0: Yeah, so it's sort of like I mean, we'll we'll never. Well, saying it will never happen is not true because I think we've had randomized trials of CBT before. But uh, but it's very difficult, especially in a prison setting, to randomly assign people to different programming, and so we're not going to do that. But if people are randomly assigned to different decision makers, these evaluators in your case. And we know that human decision makers will vary in the likelihood that they put you in some program, as they do in this case, then we're effectively randomizing people into CBT or not. So that's sort of the the beautiful natural experiment side of this. Um, it kind of gets you, approximates the randomized trial without having to actually run a randomized trial, just because people are human.
1: Exactly. And they make different decisions. Sometimes they make mistakes. Sometimes mm-hmm. they don't and just the fact that they have these differences in recommendation rates, this is a some randomness in the process that they didn't plan for, but that allows me to evaluate the causal effects of the program. And I agree with you that RCTs are really hard to implement in prisons, especially when we're talking about programs that are already implemented. When you are to design a new program, I think randomizing participation is Plausible, and most policymakers will agree with that. When you're talking about programs that are already implemented, this would involve removing participants from having the possibility to participate. And this is where we can have ethical issues.
0: Right. If it's already operating at scale. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, folks who are familiar with this design, so we're it's similar, we see similar research designs and looking at the effect of incarceration. You have random assignment to different judges who incarcerate people at different levels. Lots of these different decision-maker designs are out there. People might already be thinking, okay, well, one of the big assumptions underlying the strategy is what the economists uh, or econometricians will call the exclusion restriction. So the assumption here is that the evaluators affect individuals' subsequent behavior, their recidivism, for instance, only through their participation in the CBT program and not in some other way. So the story we might be worried about is if evaluators who are more likely to assign people to CBT programs also attend also tend to assign them to other programs as well. So they just get more programming in general. Or, or maybe the people who really like CBT programs are really warm and fuzzy and inspiring and, and they have a better rapport with the inmates. And so then maybe it's the personality that's actually having the impact on behavior. So what we're worried about is there's some other channel that's correlated with their preference about CBT programs, uh, that's independently affecting people's outcomes. So that's something you have to think seriously about as the researcher. Like, do we believe here that the CBT recommendation is the, the only channel that could affect behavior? And you talk about this a bunch in the paper. So how do you convince yourself that this exclusion restriction holds in this setting?
1: So this is a great point. And I agree with everything that you said. So evaluators should influence inmate only through participation when we're talking about recidivism. And we could think about different stories where that wouldn't hold. And at first myself, I wasn't convinced until I talked with people uh, on the field. So the first question I ask is, okay, what happened after the recommendation is made? And I thought, oh, maybe there will be some follow-up. Maybe that's the person that will provide the program and that would violate the exclusion restrictions like 100%. What I learned when talking with people on the field is that after the recommendation is made, the case is transferred to another agent who will then follow up with the inmate. This is that other agent that will introduce the program and will follow through with participation and will continue providing counseling to the inmate. So really, the evaluator and the inmates have a minimal interaction very early on during the incarceration incarceration spell, but nothing after this. And so I learned all of this when talking with people on the field. And what's nice about the data is I can empirically test for this. So for instance, I can show that the individual characteristics do not predict assignment to evaluators. So the type of crime, for example, is not correlated with being assigned to someone who recommends the program a lot or not. So in other words, inmates are not matched based on their likelihood to participate in CBT, nor on their likelihood to to recidivate. And this is crucial here for the design. Another thing that you said, which which was right, is that these evaluators could just recommend more programming in general. And so this is where knowing the, the details about the CBT program is super important. Most participants, again, will only participate in CBT and nothing else because they are deemed not receptive to programming in general. Now, one way that I can test for the exclusion restriction, as we call it in economics, is by exploiting a a very nice aspect of the setting in that the program is not always available and for different reasons. First, it could be staffing variations. So not everyone in the prison can provide the program. They have to, to go through a specialized training to provide CBT. So if the CBT practitioner is not on site at the moment of one's incarceration spell, they won't have the possibility of participating. Another reason is that the program is group-based. This means that they'll be waiting eventually for enough participants to be willing to participate to form a crew. So there are a few people well-defined in, in the sample that are incarcerated when the program is not in effect. What I can do here is show that the evaluators do not affect the outcomes of these well-defined individuals on any outcomes. So on their disciplinary infractions, on their likelihood of getting parole, or recidivism. So this suggests that the effect of the recommendation is only true participation in CBT. Because when it's not available, the recommendation rate of the evaluator does not affect the inmates in any way. So this is a strong evidence for the exclusion restriction in my context.
0: Yeah, I love this. It's a great, um, it's a great placebo check, <laughs> as we like to call it. And so Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if there's any other channel through which these evaluators affect recidivism, it should still be operational. Even when the CBT program isn't available. But it is, but then there's no results. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. I think one important point is I learned all of this when talking with people who are providing the program. I would have not thought about this if I was just looking at the data. Right.
0: Right. Turns out talking to people is really useful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. So back to what you do here. So what data do you have available for your analysis? So
1: I merge different types, different data sets. So first I have the inmates records from all the Quebec prisons. So that would include their criminal history, either current or past, have uh, sociodemographic variables, such as their age at the time of sentencing, whether they are of Indigenous descent, and so on. And I merged that with newly collected data at the facility level. That data is about participation in CBT, because again, in my context, this was managed at the facility level. So I had to wait Quite some time, I received a bunch of PDF files that I needed to merge back to the administrative data. I had a lot of fun during uh, an entire summer going through that. But what's important uh, with that data is I can track individuals through time. And this is how I can assess whether they commit further crimes. And this is really how I define recidivism in my study. I define recidivism as receiving another sentence within a given time frame, for example, one year. Now, this new sentence could be community-based or also include uh, an incarceration spell.
0: Okay, great. So let's talk about the results. What do you find is the effect of participation in the CBT program, parkour on disciplinary infractions while incarcerated and recidivism after release?
1: So I do not find any effect on disciplinary infractions. So in other words, participants do not behave differently while they are participating. This could sound surprising. I was surprised too. But what I also find is about half of the participants start a program during the later stages of their incarceration period, near the release. So that leaves them with plenty of time to commit disciplinary infractions before they start participating. So during the incarceration period, I do not find any changes in, uh, in behavior. Now, on a more positive note, I find very strong effects on recidivism in the short term. So within a year, I find that the recidivism rate of participants falls very sharply by about 16 percentage points. Beyond this point, so after a year, the effect seems to dissipate away. About three or four years after, I do not find any differences between participants and non-participants. But I really want to emphasize that this is not necessarily bad news. This means that the program is actually doing something right. And perhaps just a few parameters of the program could be improved to really anchor the newly acquired skills to make sure that we see effects that are persistent in the long term.
0: Right. I mean, people just need a refresher every once in a while. Like we can't expect <laughs> this kind of training to affect the rest of your life for a, you know, a short program.
1: Absolutely, and I I would love to see more research about this. Um, I think my paper opens the question, how can we make sure that the effects are persistent? And there could be so many different ways that there could be follow-up interventions, either on the phone or on the internet, and this could really make the effect more persistent.
0: Okay. Do these effects differ in interesting ways across different groups?
1: So they really do, and that's super interesting. So in the overall sample, I find that these effects dissipate away after a year, but it's not the case for everyone. So first-time offenders experience large treatment effects for up to three years after participation. And I do not find evidence that the effects fade away to zero. Rather, there's some attrition in my sample. I do do not observe everyone for up to four or five years. So my rating of the evidence so far is that First-time offenders, people who are incarcerated for the first time, seems to experience persistent treatment effects. And this is a really good news. I also find that first-time offenders are likely to comply with the evaluator's recommendation. So what does it mean to comply with the recommendation? It means that for first-time offenders, if they are recommended for participation, they will be likely to participate. But on the other end, if they are not recommended for participation, they will likely not participate. And to me, this makes sense. First-time offenders are incarcerated for the very first time, they have less experience behind bars, and they might do what they are told to do. And so combining these two sets of results, first finding that first-time offenders experience large treatment effects, but also that they are likely to comply with their recommendations, has very nice policy implications for targeting. It means or it suggests that targeting first-time offenders might actually multiply the positive effects of CBT programs because recommending them for participation will likely result in actual participation and that in turn will uh, lead to a decline in recidivism. So it really has implications for targeting in a practical sense.
0: Yeah, so were we're the effects for the... Repeat offenders, no. Was there any effect there, or are there, the effects were just bigger for first-time offenders?
1: So there were effects, but they were very they were smaller in scale, but also less persistent. So I do still find for repeated offenders, so people who are at their second or third offense, for example, they will benefit in the very short term. So we're talking within six months up to within a year. But again, these evidence that evidence there's evidence that these effects will dissipate away just after a few months.
0: Okay. And finally, you consider how the composition of the Parker groups and the timing of when people participate change the effect of the program. So how do you do this and what do you find?
1: So I think this is a very nice contribution of the paper, actually. I'm not aware of any other work that look at the parameters of the program itself. So I think I'm the first one, and (laughs) let me know if I'm wrong, to try to causally measure the effects of such parameters. So about the composition of the group, I started off saying that maybe prison is not an ideal setting to provide CBT where you could have these negative peer effects. So think about it this way. You're targeting high-risk offenders, people who are deemed to be not receptive to other types of treatment, and you put them in a room for 24 hours for intervention. And there could be disruptive behavior, and that could totally cancel out the positive effects of the program. What I find here is that when the group is composed of first-time offenders, people who are likely themselves to benefit from the program, well, that will have spillover effects for the entire group. So say, for example, that you have two identical inmates who decide to participate in the treatment. One is assigned to a group composed mostly of first-time offenders, and the other one is put for intervention with more hard-earned criminals. They will not have the same outcomes even though they both participated. So really having first-time offenders in the group seems to be crucial to ensure large treatment effects for everyone in the room. The other aspect of the program that I'm trying to measure is the timing of participation. And when reading the criminology and the psychology literature, I found very diverging views on this subject. Some would argue that early participation is preferable because that will improve behavior for the entire incarceration period. But if we think that these skills tend to depreciate with time, there could be a problem with that. So imagine that someone participates in the CBT program, finishes the program, but then has one more year to serve. That's one more year where they will interact with other people and where the skills could actually depreciate. So if that's the case, I could find that there are no effects at the time of release. And this is actually what I find. I find that when participation occurs later, so near the release dates, that's when I find the most persistent and large treatment effects. So there are really two parameters to consider here, the group composition and also the timing of participation. And I think this is a nice contribution because these two parameters, the group composition, and the timing of participation are two parameters that that could be adapted for programs that are already operating either in the US, Canada, or other European countries. You wouldn't have to completely design new programs, you would only have to modify these different margins to ensure stronger treatment effects of the already implemented programs.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. The effect of the group composition reminds me a bit of, um, there's a paper by Lelisa Narte on the effects of after-school programs in El Salvador, where they're trying to reduce violence. And I, it might have had a CBT component. I can't quite remember. But she she did a lot with these. She ran a randomized trial and then looked at the effects of the group composition. I can't remember off the top of my head what, <laughs> what group composition was better, but it did matter. And so... It does just sort of like, I mean, one downside of this is if, you know, if, if you benefit from having lower risk, or in this case, the first time offenders in your group, where do you put the repeat offenders, right? Do they just not participate? And so it becomes a little tricky, but at least like recognizing that the composition of the group is going to affect whatever, what, what the outcomes are from this program is, is important.
1: Exactly. I agree it's challenging, and I don't have the answers to, to every problem that we might have when creating these programs. One thing I will say is that the program that I'm studying was retargeted only at high-risk offenders. What I'm finding is this might not be ideal. If you could mix the composition a little bit more, this could have spillover effects. In my view, this seems better than just targeting high-risk, but having lower effects of such programs. But I totally agree with your point. And I did this analysis, again, with talking with people on the field, the the counselors themselves, who are responsible for giving the program, telling me that the main challenge that they face is disruptive behavior from some of the participants. Some participants in the group really want to improve. They really want to learn. Others do not have the same behavior, and they have to take some time to discipline the group really. And their sense seems to fit what I find in
0: the paper. Super interesting. Okay. So overall is with all of these, you know, different parameters and different effects for different people, overall, is this a cost effective program?
1: So delivering such a program is not costly at all. There's a fixed cost for developing the program at first and also ongoing costs associated with the training of counselors. But on the other hand, the potential benefits of avoiding future incarceration are potentially huge. So just to give you an idea, in Canada, incarceration is very costly. When we look at the cost per inmate per day, it's about twice as much as it is in the US. And so avoiding these future incarceration spells might actually be extremely beneficial. And this is what I find. In the paper, I do a very simple back-of-the-envelope calculation, and I find that the benefits outweigh the cost by a factor of six. So this is in the range of what has been found in the literature for other CBT programs, not only in the prison setting. But I would argue that this estimate is very conservative. I'm only including future incarceration costs. I'm not including anything regarding victimization, or the cost of the crimes themselves. So only the benefits of avoiding incarceration seem super important. So this means that even though the intervention time is quite short, because incarceration is so costly, the benefits are very, very important.
0: Yeah, there are going to be other... I'm thinking about the conservativeness of the estimates. There are are other benefits in terms of savings from... Crime just because it's costly in lots of ways, aside from just incarceration. But if it reduces criminal behavior, CBT, if CBT reduces criminal behavior, it probably also changes other behavior. Like I wouldn't be surprised if then that means you're more likely to be employed or, you know, just other sorts of things like that that would have other social benefits. So I agree. That seems like a very conservative estimate.
1: I agree. So there are many other outcomes that I could look at, including employment. Welfare assistance, housing, even uh, so, mm-hmm. if we include all of that, I would expect the benefits to be even higher than the cost. For the cost, really, it's really about the salary of the counselor who's taking time to give that program.
0: Yeah, and from the perspective of a, pr- of a prison, these are the relevant costs, right? So you have <laughs> you have to hire this counselor, and then you're going to have fewer beds filled on the other end, and so there's an upfront cost, but a, a, a savings. And it sounds like they, it more than bounces out. Exactly. Okay, so what are the policy implications of these results? What should policymakers and practitioners take away from this study?
1: So the most important takeaway here is that human behavior can change. So in my study, I show that offenders are better able to reintegrate society, at least in the short term, following a very standardized CBT program. But I think that tells us a little bit more than that. It tells us something more general about human behavior, that even ingrained habits and beliefs can be modified. Now, on the practical side, one important takeaway is that we have to be very careful about how we implement CBT. It's not sufficient to implement a CBT program and wait for recidivism rates to go down. You have to be careful about the group composition and also the timing of the participation. And again, I think these two parameters could be already integrated into already existing programs across the the U.S. and across Canada as well.
0: Have any other papers related to this topic come out since you first started working on this study?
1: So there are a few papers now, including very clever job market papers, uh, and they tackle similar questions. Now, I would love to see more work in this space. I believe that knowing more about other contexts will really help knowing which program works but also, more importantly, which programs do not work? Uh, so, there's been very exciting work in that area. I know, for example, Michael LaFerrest who's a professor at the US Force Academy, is working on estimating the heterogeneous effects of a CBT program offered in the US, Thinking for a Change, that I mentioned earlier, which is a program that's very similar in nature to parkour. So, hopefully, knowing more about who to target for such interventions will be helpful when it's time to design beneficial and improved programs. And I know that some other work is on the way. Another paper that I have in mind is the one published in Econometrica by Yotam Shemtov, Steven Raphael, and Alisa Skog, who found that a restorative justice program targeted at young, young offenders uh, is extremely beneficial. They find these large effects on re-arrests in the future. Whether that translates to a population of adult offenders is still uh, an open question.
0: Amazing. I didn't know about Mike's ongoing study on thinking for change. So that's fantastic.
1: Yeah. Keep eye open for that one.
0: Excellent. All right. So what is the research frontier? What are the next big questions in this area that you and others will be thinking about going forward?
1: So what is well documented now is that prison can have heterogeneous effects that could depend on the characteristics of the individuals, but also on the prison conditions. So, whether, for example, they focus on rehabilitation or punishment. So, in my opinion, anything that will tell us a little bit about what's happening behind bars, what works and what doesn't, will help moving the literature forward. Now, in my setting, what I find is strong effects of CBT in the short term for the general inmate population. So, the way that the program is designed now, there is no follow up intervention after release. So, after participants have completed the CBT program, they are released and free to go. And it could be tempting for them to go back to their old habits or to go back to their former criminal networks. So light Dutch follow-up interventions, either on the phone or on the internet, could prevent that from happening. But this is still an empirical question. I'll be trying to think about this in the future.
0: Excellent. My guest today has been William Arbor from the University of Montreal. Well, thanks so much for talking with me.
1: Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure.
0: You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures and our other contributors for supporting the show. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. If you enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El Sheik. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.